Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. I bring you greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, they are praying for you this morning. And uh, Megan and most of my kids uh, are there. I brought Caroline and Judson with me. Uh, it's always good to be with this congregation. Although I will say that I'm a little bitter. You waited until after we left to put the basketball court in. It just seems wrong. I want to begin with a, a book I read recently. This is way, the way the author started. I'm a professor of history, so I know this in my bones. Nothing is inevitable. History is made by people who stared blinking into the uncertain future. Their paths were not lit before them by sacred meteors. For most of us, this sounds like good news. We choose and choose and choose again. Before the baby before the diagnosis, before the pandemic, before. Before when I was earnest and clever and ignorant, I thought life is a series of choices. I curated my own life until one day I couldn't. I had accepted the burden of limitless choices only to find that I had few to make. I was stuck in this body, this house, this life. American culture has popular theories about how to build a perfect life you can have it all if you just learn how to conquer your limits. There's infinity lurking somewhere at the bottom of your inbox or in the stack of self-help books on the bedside table. It taunts you as, your grip, as you grip the steering wheel in traffic, attempting your new breathing practice or in the pre-dawn minutes when you could be working out. I've seen these guides to endless progress for sale in airport kiosks. Some are written by spiritual guides promising to reveal God's single plan and purpose for my life. Trust God and the path will re reveal itself. Other books call for wild action. There are oceans to plumb and mountains to climb and plains to exist midair. Carpe diem. Try the four hour work week to escape the daily grind or check out the latest research on eliminating distraction. There are bucket lists galore glossy photographs of thrills and architectural wonders, calendars with rituals to eradicate inefficiencies, and writing journals juiced with visionary wisdom from gurus and titans of industry. These are the formulas for a meaningful life, how to live one and how to end one. But the truth is somewhere inside of me. There is no formula. We live, we are loved, and we are gone. Tumors budded and spread across my colon and liver without my consent. And here I am. I feel a spark of horror each time I remember it. We come undone. That's how Kate Bowler begins her book, No Cure for Being Human, and other truths I need to hear. She's an astute observer of American culture, and even American Christian culture. She, she spent 10 years researching the prosperity gospel movement, uh, came out with her incredible book, Blessed, a history of that movement. And then right at about that time, she got diagnosed, diagnosed as she mentions, with colon cancer in her mid-30s. And she was given no more than two years to live, a, a terminal diagnosis. I enjoy her writing. She, she writes with wit, with humor, about the coldness of many doctors who will 
read to her her survival chances, like they're reading from a book. Have 14% chance of survival. Chin up. And she writes about how her research on the prosperity gospel made her angry in the midst of her sickness. She tells a, an incredibly funny story. She, she has her liver resected, and she wanders in her gown post-surgery uh, down to the hospital Starbucks, where they have a little book rack, and they're selling some of the books that she researched. So the, the one at the front was Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. And she decides she's going to ream out the teenage cashier working at the, the, the Starbucks. So she holds up the books and says, you can't sell this here in a hospital. He's standing there looking petrified. You know, Do you know what this book says? This book says that if I have enough faith that I'll get better. So the, the, the teenager goes and gets, gets the manager, and, and they both don't know what to do with Kate Bowler. And, and she says, next time I come back, this book better not be here. So she comes back later, and the book has been replaced with Joel Osteen's newest book, <laughs> You Can, You Will. She, she writes with humor. Uh, happily, Kate Bowler has beaten the cancer odds so far. I enjoy her writing. I, I wish her the best. But sadly, her, her book doesn't have much hope to offer anyone. It bashes the cliches and the trite answers that are out there to life's problems. But in the end, it leaves you right where the title starts. No cure for being human. You know, I think the reason that our culture misses so badly on the solutions is that we don't understand the problem, do we? We identify many problems, to be sure. Inequality, injustice, hatred, mental illness, physical illness, falling educational standards, political corruption, over-policing, zealots out there, and apathetic people out there. We're, we're always identifying what we think are the problems. But we're so often like the, the group of people in that dreaded staff meeting at work or in the school project at school where you talk for an hour and realize you don't even know what problem you're trying to solve. That's so often the way we are. If you're going to ask what cure there is for being human, you better know what's wrong with being human. The text we're going to look at this morning takes aim at that very question. It's in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. I invite you to turn there. Isaiah is a prophet writing 700 years before the birth of Christ. And yet, amazingly, it's perhaps the greatest, clearest statement in the whole Old Testament of what he came to do. Why do we need a Messiah anyway? What is the work of Jesus? What's the work he came to accomplish and to do to save human beings? Isaiah himself was a man sent to minister to God's people at a time when, when spirituality was declining. After the high points of David and Solomon, the people of Israel had given themselves over to idolatry and to immorality. They reject his word. They begin doing what they want to do rather than what he commands. Isaiah is sent to them to, to bring a message of judgment and also to bring a message of comfort. That God had not finished with them yet. There will be a return to the land after exile. 
But then a number of times in the book, like, like sunlight, like rays of sunlight shining through the clouds after a storm, we get a grand vision of what God intends to do, not just as a, a temporary re- reprieve, but as a full and final salvation. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. No text is grander or more glorious than this one on the topic of the work of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 52, we're going to begin in verse 13. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. I think the main idea of the text is that God's servant Jesus accomplished the sin-bearing work of atonement for the believer. God's servant Jesus accomplished the sin-bearing work of atonement for the believer. Now, if you've turned there and you're looking at the text, we're, we're going to do chapter 52, verse 13, down to the end of chapter 53. This is a song. It's a poem. It, it has stanzas. There are five different stanzas. They're helpfully each three verses long. So there's a structure that we kind of need to see here. Uh, it's a structure known as a chiasm from the Greek word chi, which looks like an X. And the way it works is that the things on the outside... Uh, match each other, and then as you move towards the middle, you move towards the main point. So uh, the way this works in this song is that the, the outside two stanzas, chapter 52, 13 to 15, and 53, 10 to 12, both talk about the success of the Messiah, the servant. And then 53, 1 to 3, and 53, 7 to 9, talk about the life and the death of the servant, And then 53, 4 to 6 is there at the center. And that talks about the meaning of it all. But for our outline, I want us to think about five things we are taught here about the work of Jesus Christ. Five things. Number one, it was an astonishing work. An astonishing work. Number two, we'll think about it's a rejected work. A rejected work. Number three, an atoning work. An atoning work. Number four, a willing work, a willing work. And then number five, finally, a victorious work, a victorious work. It's my prayer that our study this morning will increase your faith and your joy in so great a salvation. But let's begin by reading chapter 52, verse 13 to 15. Think about an astonishing work. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. As many, were, as, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand." All right, our first stanza here speaks about his servant, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. This is the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. Uh, At times, these songs seem to be speaking about God's people, Israel, as his servant. And then other times, like here, it's clearly a singular person in view who's going to come and accomplish what Yahweh has set out for him. 
Uh, This first stanza sets up a surprising, or in the words of verse 14, an astonishing reality about the work of the servant. Uh, Look at verse 13 there. The servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. Acting wisely here means that he, he will do rightly and effectively what Yahweh sent him to do. And and that's going to lead to an exaltation for him, an honoring of the servant. But then verses 14 and 15 talks about how he does his work and what he does. The how there is through being marred beyond human semblance. So some sort of suffering is going to come upon the servant that mars him to the point of not even appearing Human, a suffering that consumes his humanity. The what is so shall he sprinkle many nations. So it brings in the idea of a priestly work, the work that a priest would do. On the Day of Atonement in Israel, the the, the priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat above the ark. Was to pay for sin and make Israel fit for living in God's presence. And there were lots of other sprinklings too, with blood to cleanse the people, or the, the priests themselves sprinkled with water for purification. They all point to a cleansing. But I want you to see two really interesting things here. First, the, the priest always uses something else for the sprinkling, for the cleansing, like the blood of an animal. But here it is the priest himself who in his own suffering sprinkles. So he's both the priest and the offering. The other interesting thing here is the scope of the purification. It goes out to many nations. Do you see that there in verse 15? It's not just Israel. It speaks of even foreign rulers, foreign kings being brought underneath it such that they they shut their mouths. And what they hadn't heard of and hadn't been told of, they now see and understand. You know, I think sometimes with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we forget how astonishing it really is. The danger of familiarity is there for us. The idea that God would take the initiative on himself to pay the penalty that we owe. That's an astonishing thing. There's awe, there's amazement that should characterize our approach to the story. I was thinking about how many stories, novelists and, and movies, the great storytellers are often just trying to borrow this story, the idea that, that someone would step in and pay the penalty for another. All of those stories are, are echoes of this great story. We should ask ourselves when we come to this topic of the atonement whether we've lost our sense of amazement. Do we have awe? Our capacity for awe is sometimes diminished both by familiarity and I think just by the number of distractions we have in the modern world. I mean, we're amazed by what a great catch, what a great comeback, what a great sale. What a great cat video. I mean, we just got this endless series of distractions. But those things are not amazing. Those things are not great. Those things are not astonishing. This is truly amazing. Paul points to these verses in Romans 15 to point to his mission to take the gospel 
to those who have not heard and have not understood. He's looking at verse 15 there and he's trying to explain to the Roman church why he's going to continue his mission to Spain and why he's hoping that they're going to help him. When you think about your ministry as a church here at Arlington Baptist Church, you should think about verse 15. That there are those around you that, that they have not heard. Just living in the United States of America does not mean that you've heard this amazing news. And it's why you should lean your, your time and your talent and your treasure in making that word spread both here and around the world. But that's the first thing we see here, is that the work of the servant is an astonishing work. Let's consider, secondly, that it's a rejected work, and pick it up in chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The song moves here to the life of the servant. It's told from the perspective of an unnamed group of people. Notice the us there and then the we that continues through the passage. It invites you and I to place ourselves in the text. But the first two questions there point to just how unbelievable the servant is and what he did is. Who has believed? Who could believe this? The implication seems to be that it's so unbelievable that the only ones who believe it are, as the second question puts it there, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the power of the Lord. That's what's required for us to understand and believe it. God's going to have to do something. Otherwise, we're, our minds are not going to be changed about the servant. Now, why would that be true? I mean, if the servant comes to accomplish an amazing salvation, what, what would be the resistance to belief? Well, for this, we need to dig into the background of the servant, his birth and his growth. And that's what the text does. It speaks there in verse 2 about uh, like a root out of dry ground. You don't expect to see a root resulting in a tree growing out of parched earth. That's what it is with the Messiah. And the Gospels remember the frequent surprise that people had about Jesus. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was a nobody. He came from nowhere. And as he grew, there was nothing impressive about him. I was thinking about how in the Old Testament, many of the, the leaders of Israel were, were marked out by physical impressiveness. You know, Saul was a, a head taller than the rest. Or, or David was ruddy and handsome. But this, if I'm not mistaken, is the only physical description of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. When I was growing up, there was a, a church that we would go to sometime that, that had, a, it had a stained glass window right back here. Uh, it was Jesus uh, on a grassy hillside with lambs. He was holding a lamb. Uh, he's, he's a handsome man. Uh, blonde hair and blue eyes, very odd for 
a Middle Eastern man. Um, and he had a halo around his head. I remember it as a boy. I spent a lot of time staring at it. But, but Jesus had no halo. The only thing we know about him physically is that he had no form, no majesty, no beauty. Now think about how fixated our culture is on appearance. I mean, most of human history got along with no gymnasiums, no plastic surgery. We're big on dressing well, on presenting well, being sharp, you know, make sure your profile picture looks good. We want Instagram glory and beauty. We gravitate towards impressive outward appearance. We worship it. Jesus had none of it. And beyond appearance, he, he had no best life now aura of success. When, when he's called there a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it takes in the reality that the Messiah grew up amidst unbelief and idolatry, and he uniquely understood how tragic it was. He understood the cost and the toll of, of turning from God. When he began his ministry, far more would be those who walked away from him. I mean, the, the rich young ruler was more typical than Peter and James and John. Even his own family, for a time, didn't believe in him. In the end, his best friends would fall asleep on him in his hour of need, and they would desert him when the final moment came. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. So for all this unimpressive outward appearance and life of sorrows, no wonder he was despised and rejected of men. He was despised like a person you turn away from because they're uncomfortable to look at. The we there invites us in again to say, we esteemed him not. So these verses are all about the rejection of the Messiah. You, you and I ought not to imagine that if we had been there, that we would have been those who stood up, spoke out against the injustice that was being perpetrated against him. If, if we put ourselves back in the story, you and I would have been with the crowd. We would have yelled crucify him along with everyone else. I mean, you and I know that we shouldn't judge a book by the cover, but we do. Man does what? He, he looks on the outward appearance. We associate physical beauty and the look of success with the blessing of God. I think one of the essential things about a Christian testimony is to recognize that we all reject Jesus before we accept him. We all esteem him not before we esteem him. For some of you, that's very clear. For me, that's very clear. There was a time in my life where I would have verbally said that. But even if you grow up in a Christian home, even if you say that there's never been a point in my life where I would verbally say, I, I, I reject Jesus. That doesn't mean, friend, that you don't reject him in your mind, in your heart, in the way that you live. The reality is when we go our own way and sin, that's what we're doing. When you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, 
when you put your own glory and your own good above the glory and good of God, we're esteeming him not. The work of Jesus, secondly, what we see here, it was a rejected work by them and by us. Let's consider thirdly, it was an atoning work. We come here to the heart of the song, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word surely there at the beginning marks out something certain, something fixed. Why was the servant suffering? Why was he a man of sorrows? Why ultimately is he marred and disfigured? Well, clearly we're told here that it wasn't because of him. It was because of us. He has borne what? Our griefs. He carried what? Our sorrows. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Again and again, it is our iniquity that is in view here. Notice the contrast that is made with the fact that while this was done, we were still esteeming him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's implying that we didn't understand what he was doing. We read earlier the text where Jesus on the cross is mocked by the passers-by, by the soldiers, by the robber next to him, by the chief priests. And we remember Paul's words, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the result here. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Which is to say that there's no peace with God, save by his work. I had someone tell me recently, I was not a Christian, but they, they told me that they're down with Jesus. That, that was the precise statement. I'm down with Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. This friend was presuming peace with God. But friends, it's not something to be presumed. You don't have peace with God as a default setting. You're an enemy of God. You've gone your own way. Peace with Him has to be purchased. Somebody's going to have to purchase it for you. Friends, these words here are the heart of the Christian message. The truth is that you and I haven't lived for God. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has to lay on him the iniquity of of us all. You know, I think about the the rejection of this truth. Theologically, it's called penal substitution, the the substitution of one who pays the penalty for another. Do you know that that is a, a doctrine that is under siege today? Many people consider it just ridiculous to think that God would require death for sin. 
I mean, I mean, why can't God, if He wants to forgive us, He's God. Why can't He just do that? When we say such things, we're presuming that God is like us. You, you and I don't have a problem overlooking sin. Because you and I are not holy. You, you and I are not bound in our character by a standard of justice. When God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the tree, in the day you disobey, you shall surely die. It is because sin requires death. Sin requires a just payment. God has to act consistent with his holy character. Which means he has to require a penalty. Friends, you will either bear your own sins to the place of judgment or someone will bear them for you. Someone innocent. Someone infant. The only one who can do that is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There's only one sin bearer. An astonishing work, a rejected work, an atoning work. Fourth, it was a willing work. Let's continue in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This fourth stanza picks up the story of the servant at the point of his death, and then his burial. Jesus is referred to in the Gospel of John as the Lamb of God. Here it pictures his silence at his trial. He opened not his mouth. Remember standing before Pilate. Pilate was shocked that he was not answering the charges against him. He said, don't you realize that I have the power to condemn you? His silence was not an indication of his guilt. Quite the opposite. As it says here, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Imagine a human being who has never said anything that was untrue. That was the Lord Jesus. Verse 9 is fulfilled after the death of Jesus when Joseph of Arimathea comes and gives the garden tomb for his burial. Jesus lived as a poor man with no place to lay his head, but in death he's buried with the rich. Now this stanza, it's certainly underlining the innocence of Jesus, right? But just as much, it's underlying the, the willingness of Jesus to die. Jesus was not the unfortunate victim of Jewish politics and an oppressive Roman rule. He walked willingly into all that the humans plotted against him, and more significantly into the sacrifice that the Father had sent him to make. I think we can see this as pointing to the the problem with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. You know, the way sacrifice worked in the the tabernacle in the temple is that an animal was offered. The the blood of the animal was offered on the altar and the life of the animal was was a substitute. 
But the, the sin that you and I commit is, is so different from what an animal can atone for. See, the, the sin that you and I commit is willful sin. And the animal offered on an altar has no willfulness. Right? That, that, that was, that's why the book of Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The, the animal can't substitute for us. What you and I need is a, a willful human being to not willfully turn against God, but willfully obey God. And that's what Jesus does here. This is how he is a suitable substitute. When he's led like a lamb to slaughter, though he's silent like a lamb, he's not helpless like a lamb. He's there by choice. So he's a suitable sacrifice. Verse 8 again points out that against the backdrop of this amazing act, people remained oblivious. Who realized that he was being killed for the transgression of his people? Nobody did. I think one of the applications here for us is that the willingness of Jesus' sacrifice becomes a pattern for you and I in following him. You know, when we're called to take up our cross and follow him, that's the very thing we're imitating. We're making a choice to obey God even when it costs us. When you make a choice to turn the other cheek, when someone wrongs you, when you love your enemy, when you submit to authority out of reverence for God, when you speak up for your faith and there is a cost that you have to pay for that. The Christian is to remember that those are small willingnesses that follow in the path of his great willing sacrifice. I was thinking here there's a special application for children, for those of you still under your parents' authority. You know, there's something that your parents cannot do for you. We can say you're going to come to church whether you like it or not. Uh, we, we can open the Bible and read it to you and you have to sit there and listen to it. But your parents can't make you willing to follow God. That, that's a choice that you're going to have to make yourself. Our prayer is that as you look to Jesus and the willing sacrifice that he made for you, by faith in him and by his power, you will choose to follow him as an act of the will. So it was a willing work. Let's consider fifth and finally that it was a victorious work. We'll read verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant song ends here on a triumphal note, doesn't it? What happens to the servant is the will of the Lord. 
And when the offering is made, it has its intended effect. We see here both the resurrection and the creation of the new people of God. And when it says there, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, it pictures the the servant on the other side of death seeing the result of his sacrifice. Verse 12, he's pictured as dividing a portion with the many. All of this points to a servant that though he was crushed, pierced, killed, he's alive again. And who are the offspring that are mentioned here? Who, Who are the many who are accounted as righteous? whose iniquities he bore. Well, they are all those who are repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, they are us. We are the ones who were straying like sheep, but have now returned as children. We are those who esteemed him not, but now worship him as the king. The text finishes again on a a priestly note. Remember the the sprinkling of purification that that the first stanza talked about. It's bracketed here at the end by him making intercession for us. Making intercession for the transgressors. To intercede means to come between two parties. To advocate for one. To to bring the two parties together. To maintain maintain peace and relationship. And that is what Jesus Christ does for the believer. Though our sins are many... And though the justice of God could cry out against them at any moment, our Savior is ever making intercession for us. We should never think that our guilt will result in our condemnation because of what Jesus has done. We need not fear. The debt is paid. The wrath of God has been propitiated by the sin-bearing servant. We put all of this together. What, What does it mean for us? This morning. Well, for some of you who are here, you've never understood the the work that the Messiah, the servant of God, that Jesus Christ came to do. This may be the first time you realize that you truly are one who has strayed from God and that there is no peace between you and He. If that's you this morning, why not trust in this Redeemer? Why not trust in the the sin-bearing sacrifice? It's available to you. Will you believe this morning? Will you trust in Him? Will you place your full hope on Him? I pray that you do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for us it's to come back to the core of who we are. These are not just idle words for us. These are our life. They should produce awe in us. We remember that we rejected him. We esteemed him not. We chose to live for ourselves. We remember though that the cost was paid for us by the Son of God. And we remember the love that made him do it willingly. And we think with joy about where we stand on the other side. Sin paid for, peace secured, intercession forever to be made. And what problems do you and I have that compares with this? Peter reaches for this very passage to encourage Christians who are going through suffering. He reminds them that though their iniquity was heavy upon them, that they've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. They need no longer fear. Brothers and sisters, is there joy in your heart? 
as you think about the sacrifice of the servant this morning. We began by thinking about Kate Bowler's book, No Cure for Being Human. I think that there are many out there who think that there is no cure, no cure at all. But it's precisely because they misdiagnose the problem. Our problem is not poor health. It's not poor relationships. It's not economic or social. Our problem is that we were straying like sheep. But the good news, beloved, is that we need not stay there. We can return to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. There is a cure for being human. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.